0: Well, thank you, praise team, for leading us in song this morning. Kids rock. Great job leading, opening our service. Looking forward to tonight. I want to invite all of you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock for, for their performance, for their uh, this, the time of worship together to support those kids as they are learning what it means to follow Christ and to sing his praises and to lead others in doing that as well. I also want to take just a moment to tell Melissa, Raleigh, and Jan Sanders thank you so much for organizing and putting together the uh, Ranchers Go to Bethlehem Parents Night Out this past Friday night. Great, great job. And thank you to all the volunteers, both student volunteers and parent volunteers who are helping with that and Uh, I've heard great, great things, so thank you so much for serving in that capacity. If you will, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter one. Luke in chapter one. Uh, The story is told of a young boy traveling by airplane to visit his grandparents who sat beside a man who happened to be a seminary professor. The boy was reading a Sunday school take home paper and the professor thought that he would have some fun with the young man. He said to the young man, If you can tell me that something that God can't do, then I'll trade my seat and you can have the window seat here. To which the boy replied, Mr., if you can tell me something that God can't do, I'll give you the whole airplane. Now, the boy couldn't give him the whole airplane, but the point is well taken, right? There is nothing that God can't do. Nothing is impossible with God. As we continue in our Advent studies through Luke's birth narratives, this morning we focus on the joy of the incarnation, specifically as we see the annunciation of Jesus, the Davidic king. And we're going to see that nothing is impossible with God and that at times he uses unlikely people and unexpected means to accomplish his purpose. So if you will, please stand as you read together the word of God. and the angel departed from her. Will you pray with me? Great God, thank you. Thank you that as we look to the text today, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have preserved for us your word and that in your word there is life and your word clearly depicts you as the God of all possibility. Nothing will be impossible With you and we're so grateful that even in your power and in your majesty and in your sovereignty you have looked to us unworthy undeserving but you have lavished grace upon us thank you thank you for jesus in his name we pray amen you may be seated After 400 years with no prophetic vision, no word from God, God now was on the move. Last week, we saw the angel Gabriel approach Zechariah. Zechariah was doing his priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem, and he appears to Zechariah, and he gives him news that he would have a son, that his wife, who was advanced in years, who had been barren her whole life, was going to have a son, and the son's name was John, and John was going to be the forerunner of the king. John would go before the king, before Jesus, and he would tell people this is the Messiah of God in whom there is salvation. Now, this was just the first domino in a succession of communications and powerful acts of God that God was giving to his people. And initially, at least, we see that Gabriel had a big role to play in this communication. So as we look to these verses today, verses 26 through 38, we're going to see several similarities between the last verses, 5 through 25. And then we're going to see some differences as well. I mean, for instance, these are both angelic birth announcements. They're both miraculous birth announcements in their own way. There are clear descriptions in both of these things of the person and the character and the role that these individuals, these these children who would grow into adults would play. So the similarities are obvious. But what's clear from Luke's gospel is that he wants us to see that Jesus is greater. He wants us to see that, that while John is important, John is really just pointing to someone who is most important, who is of utmost importance. In fact, Gabriel tells Zechariah that John would be great before the Lord. But of Jesus, Gabriel just says he will be Great. It's an unqualified greatness. And in the Old Testament, anytime we have that word great used and it's in an unqualified state, it's always pointing to the one true and living God. It's always pointing us to look to the holy God. So whether we're talking about his power or his works or his wisdom or his mercy, it's always describing God. So Luke is telling us something here when he tells us that Jesus will be Great. And those who have ears to hear will, will hear it. Those who have eyes to see will see it. This is unlike any other child who would ever be born. Now as we took to the, look to the text here, I want us to first see that God uses unlikely people to accomplish His purpose. God uses unlikely people to to accomplish his purpose. So in verse 26, we're told that in the sixth month, Gabriel appears to Mary. The sixth month here, as we read later on in the same passage, refers to uh, the time in Elizabeth's pregnancy. So she was six months along, in the sixth month then, Gabriel appears to Mary and is gonna tell her about the baby that she's gonna have. Now a few things stand out to me at the beginning. First is that Gabriel goes to Nazareth in the region of Galilee, okay? Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Now it's very likely that Luke had to include that this was in the region of Galilee because no one had ever heard of Nazareth. It was an insignificant little town, right? People wouldn't have known where Nazareth was. Nazareth? Why would would Gabriel go to Nazareth? And where is Nazareth? It would be like some of the towns in West Texas, right? Unless you're from around here, you probably wouldn't know that there is a a town called Wink. I think it's called Wink because you wink and you're out, out of the town already, right, as you're driving through it. Or did you know that there is, and all of you are from here, or live around here, so you know this, but if you say to someone that there is a Nazareth, Texas, no one's going to know that. But here it is in West Texas. So we would have to say, oh yeah, I'm from Wink. Where's Wink? Well, Wink's in West Texas. Well, where's West Texas? Well, it's just on the west side of the state. It's near this. And we go from there on and on and on. Well, you recall that when Jesus was calling his disciples, one of the disciples whose brother came to him or friend came to him. Was named Nathaniel. Happens to be my favorite of the disciples. He was. He was said. He her learned of this guy from Nazareth, and he said, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" So this is the place that Gabriel went to. But more significantly, Gabriel appeared to a young virgin, betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal was the first step in the marriage process during this time. There was a formal witnessed agreement. The exchange of a bride price and then there was a preparation period that might last for a year where the groom would go away get everything ready and then he would come back and get his bride and then, then take the bride with and then they would consummate the marriage at that point. While we don't know much about Mary's specific age we believe she was a young teenager we do know that some betrothals took place as early as 12 years old and As were so many females then, Mary would have been an uneducated person and she would have been in Nazareth from a poor peasant family. Now notice how different this is from when the the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. He appears to Zechariah who has an important role as a priest. He appears to Zechariah in Jerusalem, an important place. He appears to... Zechariah in the temple not in just a home there is something going on here all the circumstances about Gabriel going to Zechariah are high and lifted up but now he appears to Mary and it's a lowly setting I think this is also significant because it points us to the king of kings who had a lowly humble beginning And frankly, it points us to the fact that we must be lowly and humble to come to this king, to benefit from this king. And his message to Mary, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now this certainly seems to have stunned and confused her, verse 29. Uh, Reformer Martin Luther paraphrases Gabriel's words to Mary by saying, "Oh, Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God, no woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown so much grace. And we can understand why Mary would be perplexed at this. Me? Favored by God? Who am I? Beside that, there was an angel of the Lord, the same angel of the Lord who, we're told, Gabriel came to Zechariah, and Zechariah was terrified in the presence. So Mary's there, Gabriel approaches, and she's just stunned. She's shocked who wouldn't be. But friends, Mary is not alone in the confusion from this greeting. The Roman Catholic Church is misinterpreted in such a way that has led to a world of theological errors. The Latin Vulgate translation of this verse says, Hail Mary, full of grace. This is a flawed interpretation leading to the elevation of Mary, to co-redeemer even of Jesus. These errors had led to uh, the promotion of the doctrine of Mary's perpetual sinfulness, both of which teachings are clearly unbiblical, going against scripture. Now, the term, oh favored one, is a passive participle. In other words, this means that Mary is the recipient of divine grace, not the giver of divine grace, or not the disseminator of divine grace. In other words, God gives Mary grace. Mary receives grace, as commentator Robert Stein notes. The emphasis here is on God's sovereign choice of Mary, not on Mary's qualifications. Friends, that's how it works. That's how God works. That's how grace works. Grace comes to those who don't deserve it. Grace comes to the unfaithful From the faithful one. It's for the humble. It's for the unassuming. It's those who understand that they have a great need for God's grace and presence. Well, seeing Mary's reaction, Gabriel elaborates Hey, don't be afraid. You found favor with God, and you're going to conceive and you're going to bear a son, and you're going to name him Jesus. Now, the word that Luke uses for favor in verse 30 30, is related to the word that he uses previously in his greeting. Um, It's not the exact same word, but it focuses on God's gracious acts. Theologian Daryl Bach notes that when Luke uses this word elsewhere in the gospel or in the book of Acts, it always refers to what God has done for his people out of his good Pleasure. There's, there's and there's a lot of theological ramifications there, not just for Mary, but for us. Even the name Jesus means God saves. And when Gabriel appears, well, we assume it's Gabriel, when the angel appears to Joseph, one Mary is betrothed to, as recorded in the book of Matthew, it's it's hey, Mary's gonna have a son, and he is gonna save God's people from their sins. So he adds that element there. God saves. How is God saving? What is God doing? He's saving from their sin. And he's gonna be great, he tells Mary. He's gonna be great. Can't you see Gabriel saying, Mary, your son, he's going to be great. He's the savior. He's the long expected Messiah, the promised one who is gonna come and make all things right, Mary. He's the son of the most high. He's your son, Mary, this is an amazing thing. He's the one that all the prophets spoke about. He's the one that we've been waiting for for so long. Mary, this is big. His kingdom is gonna go on forever and ever, and there's gonna be no end. Now, friends, the Jews had been living in this constant expectation of a savior since their captivity and even from their release. They knew that God had promised David a son who would sit on the throne of David forever in an unending kingdom. And ever since the captivity in Assyria and Babylon, the people had expected a kind of freedom that they did not have. A kind of freedom that would come from a Davidic king. Unfortunately, they kind of missed the mark of what that freedom was initially. Yes, it would bring a complete political freedom under the under theocracy of God in his kingdom forever. But the greater picture here is the freedom that we have from sin and death. And that's why Gabriel says to Joseph he will save people from their sin. So we see these things at play here and it's all hitting really fast. And while there are hundreds and thousands of years of prophecy, Mary's hearing it for the first time now and she's just perplexed. She doesn't know what to expect Friends, God uses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. We see this throughout scripture. It's true of Joseph. It's true of Moses. It's true of Gideon. It's true of Ruth. It's true of David even, right? The youngest of the sons of Jesse who would be elevated, anointed king. It's true of King Cyrus who decreed that God's people should rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and then even fund the project. It's true of the 12 disciples tax collectors and fishermen who would ultimately be gifted by God, given the Spirit, and turn the world upside down. It's true of the Apostle Paul, who was formerly a murderer and a persecutor of the church, but was saved by God's grace. God uses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Throughout history, we see that God is working amazing thing through unlikely people. From St. Augustine to John Newton to Chuck Colson, people with pasts, whom God has showed grace and then enabled them to make an impact for his glory. God has a history of using unlikely people. And I believe, and I'm certain of it, that God continues to use unlikely people today for his glory, people like you. Let me just read for you in Colossians chapter one concerning the call of God. Colossians chapter one, verse 26 through 31, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He didn't call the wise, he didn't call the rich, the strong, the powerful. He called people like me and people like you to himself so that he would get the glory as he works power through us to bring about change all according to his will, all according to his plan, all according to his grace. Lest anyone think that it depends on us, God calls us and uses people that emphasize his power and his wisdom so that he gets the glory. So what is our response? Our response is to be available. Our response is to serve. Our response is to speak and to live the gospel and to trust him with everything else. Now, of course, Mary was even more astonished at this point. How can this be since I am a virgin? How could any of this be since I'm a virgin? Now, let's just take a step back here because I want to make very clear about something. God is ultimately accomplishing all these things through Christ Jesus, and he is the expected one. But the fact that he's going to marry an insignificant person to say, this is, this is how I have favored you and shown grace to you. This is how we understand that God uses people that we wouldn't expect him to use. Right? We, we might expect him to use maybe the wife of a priest. We might expect him to use maybe the wife of, of someone to bear the son of God, maybe who's in royalty. But a peasant girl from a town where no one knows where it is, God is using unexpected people to accomplish his glory. The second thing we see here is that God uses unexpected means to accomplish his purposes. God uses unexpected means to accomplish his purpose. So let's be honest. Any rational person, everyone in this room, would ask the same question that Mary asked How can this be? It doesn't work that way. That's not how it happens. So we can understand Mary's confusion here. Well, let's look again at verses 35. 35- So in response to Mary's question, in a very matter-of-fact way, Gabriel just puts it out there. The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. The power of the Most High God is gonna overshadow you. Literally, the power of God, the Spirit of God will cast a shadow upon you. Now this reminds us of the creation account in Genesis chapter one and verse two. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was there. The spirit of God was there. And here, Gabriel is saying that the creative power of the spirit of God that brings about, will bring about your pregnancy. And friends, there isn't a hint of anything inappropriate taking place in, these, in this passage here. Why is it important that the Messiah be born of a virgin by the power of God? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Adam and Eve were the first humans created directly by God and, that had, and they had clear responsibility to listen and to obey, but they failed. They sinned. They rebelled. Romans 5 refers to Adam as the first Adam who failed miserably. He failed so much so that the Apostle Paul says, Sin and death entered the world through him, and it spread to all people. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Sin spread so that all who were born after the first Adam are born with a sinful nature, separated from the holy God because of their sin. And this is undeniable. I mean, we see this in everyday life. We see it in our own children and we see it in our own selves and we see it throughout the world. We each want to go our own way. We each want to maximize, we each want to prioritize our own desires, our own pursuits. So the idea of a fallen nature is undeniable, friends. That's what we get from Adam and Eve. We're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. And the the clear consequences of sin, as God tells us, is death eternal separation from God because of a rebellion against him, and this is the condition of every person born into this world and who is today apart from God's grace in Christ. This is a massive problem. This is an incredible problem, and none of us can fix this problem because we are all in the same condition, in the same boat. We can't produce the Savior that we need. We can't produce the one who will rescue us from our sin, But nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. God provides our Savior, Jesus, in an unexpected way, a way that allows Jesus to be free from the sin nature that plagues all humanity. So in Jesus, God is essentially beginning anew. In Romans chapter 5, again, Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. The second Adam undoes everything that the first Adam failed in. He perfectly obeyed the Father in every way. Now remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, God spoke out curses. Remember, to the serpent, he spoke out curse to to Adam and then to Eve as well. But to the serpent, he said that the seed of the woman would one day crush your head. Now just... Think for a minute. There's no mention of the man in that process, just the seed of the woman. Isn't it curious? Everywhere else, almost everywhere else in scripture, it's always the male's line that is emphasized, but that's not the point. Here's the point. God must provide the Savior. And nothing will be impossible with God. So God is providing the Savior In Mary, free from the line of Adam that would bring about a sin nature. So the good news, friends, the message that Gabriel gives to Mary, in the most unexpected means imaginable, God is doing something marvelous and wonderfully joyful. Never done before and never to be done again. From the darkness of Mary's womb will come forth the light of the world. Of course, Gabriel is just repeating what the prophet Isaiah said so many hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that ought to humble us, friends. That ought to humble us. It reminds us that we can't save ourselves, that we can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. We're in a desperate condition but it also ought to encourage us, because in the bleakest of situations, nothing will be impossible with God. Isn't that what you see in scripture? Young person left for dead, the youngest son left for dead, sold into slavery, but ultimately will save his family and the people of God, because God puts him in the right place at the right time. Or the baby that's put in the basket will lead God's people out of Egypt, Or a shepherd boy kills the Philistine hero, the Philistine champion with a stone. Or the pagan king of Persia will allow for the Jews to return home and give them all the money and the funds they need to do the building project. Or God multiplies the offering of a boy to bless a multitude of people. Or persecution that is meant to destroy the church actually leads to the growth of the church. And friends, This truth ought to motivate us as well. How might God use you today? What gifts, what abilities do you have that exercise in a different context would be used for the glory of God? What relationships are you currently in that God intends as an avenue to speak the gospel to share the life-giving message? What experiences do you have that have prepared you to love and encourage others? What financial means has God blessed you with that he intends you to use so that the gospel can go forth to the ends of the earth? Friends, nothing is impossible with God, but I think many of us don't believe that. I think many of us think, well, yeah, I mean, it used to be that way. And we read about that, you know, it's in the Bible, but we don't see that today. I mean, is that that true today still? Like, okay, yeah, God's all powerful, but he's really not going to do anything. I think some of us struggle because we just don't believe it. But what if we did believe it? Would we walk more confidently in obedience, knowing that his way is the way to joy and his way is the way to life? Would we be more generous knowing that He will provide for every need that we have? Would we take more risks for the gospel because we know that God is in control? Would we live our faith more boldly even if we experience opposition because we believe Him when He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Would we believe that? The coming of Christ is news of great joy, even as the host of angels sang to the shepherds. It's a sign that God loves us, that he has not forgotten us, and that he is faithful. Now, I want to close again just by reading in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. From her. So Mary's response to this encounter. Friends it's one of faith. She believes what God tells her. She rests in what God tells her. She desires what God tells her. So let me ask you. What is your response to God's plan. And God's purpose. What is your response to God's plan. And God's purpose. May it be faith. May it be humility, may it be submission, may it be expectation, may it be obedience, may it be joy because of the work of salvation through Jesus. As we transition to a time of invitation, would you pray for grace to believe God's promise? Would you pray for grace to live fully for Jesus, ready to be used of him however he leads Would you pray for a heart of generosity to give to support missions and missionaries? And if you have questions about the gospel this morning, about a relationship with the one true and living God, about baptism or joining our church family, or would like someone to pray with you, please come forward. We would love to connect with you even now. Will you pray with me? We thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you that we see throughout scripture and we believe or can believe fully today that there is nothing that is impossible with you. So God, help us to live that truth. Help us to believe that truth. Mostly, Lord, help us to seek your glory in all things. Help us to be driven by faith to live as you call us to live and to be as you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and would you respond as God leads?